231. You can follow along on page six. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the hearts, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither you, we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it. Then the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it, reads, it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Vula. Well, we're continuing in our uh, study of the book of Acts. And I've got to say, as I peek up at this clock here, some of you may not realize uh, the clock in the back here is about five minutes slow. So anytime I'm going long, it ain't my fault, all right? Uh, and it's never my fault, right? Uh, maybe we'll, we'll fix that, but I'm just noticing that here. Uh, and your answer is supposed to be, never mind, preacher, it's timeless. We're all right. Uh, it's been a joy to study the book of Acts, these early Stories about the beginning of the Christian church, the movement of the gospel through the Mediterranean region, which, of course, if you are a professing Christian, if you bear the name of Christ, that means this is your story. This is your family's story, the story of the beginning of the Christian church, the family of Christ. And we come upon now chapter 15 in this book, in the pace of our coverage of this Wonderful narrative is going to pick up a little bit from here, but happy to take a look at this, which may seem like a passage with many technicalities. I hope to unpack some of that with you today and bring together, I hope, what might be a compelling message to all of our hearts, the message of the grace 
of God. But let's pause first and let's pray as we ask for God's help. Jesus, we need your help. Come, glorify yourself, make your word come alive with power, change our hearts. Send your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus. Speak to us so that we could hear from you almost audibly with such conviction and with clarity that it would feel as though you are truly speaking to us even here and now. And so come, Jesus, you are alive. You are not dead. You are even here with us now. And with resurrection power, bring out of things that might seem dead or are dead, bring them to life. Come and raise all things that are dead and make new all things that feel old. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes, sometimes change is uncomfortable. Ain't that true? Change sometimes is uncomfortable, whether if it's a pattern that you have in your home or the makeup of your workplace and ministry in the church or relationships in your lives. Change sometimes can be unnerving. We say to ourselves, this is how we've always done it. This is how I've always been. There's even a whole industry that exists for the purposes of leading people through change called change management. Some of you might work in those spaces. Change can be threatening as well. Change often brings with it a loss of power sometimes even a loss of identity. It's why many of us resist change. We don't want to see things be other than what they've always been. We like the place that we have in the systems and the relationships that we have. Change is sometimes a threat. For some of us, change is fun, exciting, dynamic. It might be depending upon your personality, but for all of us, at all times, sometime or another, Change is hard. It certainly was the case for the early Christians and the early church as they were trying to figure out what it meant to develop into a truly multi-ethnic and multicultural community. There was a lot of challenge sorting through the theological implications as well as the cultural and relational implications and this is the center at, center of the challenges before the church as we encounter them in Acts chapter 15. So we arrive into this passage. It's been a couple years now since God began to do an amazing thing. Non-Jewish people whom the Jewish world would have called Gentiles, non-Jewish people were hearing about the love of Jesus for the first time. They were beginning to put their faith in Christ, becoming followers of him. And they were being brought into the life of the church. And at first, these new converts, these Gentile converts, were people like the Ethiopian eunuch that we encounter in Acts chapter 8, or Cornelius the Roman that we met in Acts chapter 10. And these were people who were initially familiar with Jewish culture and religion, even though they were Gentiles. They had been exposed to it. And in fact, they might even have already participated in the life of local synagogues, though they still needed to discover the person of Christ. But then there was a shift, as we read last week, in Acts chapters 13 and 14, when Paul and Barnabas and Silas and others began to carry the gospel deeper into the Mediterranean region, into places like modern-day Syria and Cyprus and Turkey and beyond. And so now suddenly there was an, an explosion of Gentile, non-Jewish Christians who in fact knew nothing about ancient Jewish culture and identity. They came to faith in Christ because they had gotten to know Christ, his death, his resurrection, and what it means to put their trust in him. They knew Jesus, but they didn't know Jewishness. And of course, 
from an Old Testament Jewish point of view, that meant they were doing, well, everything all wrong. They ate the wrong foods. They didn't perform any of the ceremonial washings. They had their own strange customs. And most of all, their boys and their men weren't circumcised, which in the Old Testament was the main ritual way through which Gentiles were brought into the community of Israel. They had it all wrong culturally, behaviorally, but they believed in Jesus, that he was the Son of God, that he died the death, that we should have died for our sins, that they had received the forgiveness of all of their sins. And that Jesus had brought them into God's family as equal heirs of the riches of heaven. It was something that was owed to them now as sons and daughters of one heavenly father. This is what they believed about Jesus. And so it began to raise massively important questions in the life of the church. And it sounded like this. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Is it enough simply to trust in him, to get right with God, to be a full member of the Christian community? Or do you also have to do something else or be culturally someone else? Is Jesus enough? The answer in the church of Antioch, this new outpost from which this new Gentile mission was being created and formed, the Antioch church's answer was yes, Jesus is enough. The Gentile mission of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and others who were sharing the love and the grace of Jesus everywhere, for them the answer was yes. But then we find out in verse 1 of our passage, that there were some who had different opinions, strong opinions. Verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And then again in verse 5, we're told that some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And these people were teaching these things that essentially were saying, Jesus is good, but there's also more that you must do and be to be right with God and to be full-fledged members of the Christian community. And these teachers, of course, weren't wrong to value circumcision and the laws and the commandments of God. These two were gifts of God. That's true. God had given them to Israel in the period of the Old Testament. But notice these small words that matter so much. The way in which they argued in verse 5 that Gentiles must be circumcised. Uh, that they must keep the law of Moses. In verse 1, that you cannot be saved without being more culturally Jewish. These things they were saying were required for salvation. They were required to be true heirs in the family of God. And so the apostles gathered together, the lead teachers in the entire region, for a council in Jerusalem to sort through and pray over and deliberate what exactly is it that God word, God's word actually teaches? What is the right view of things? And this was a monumental, even watershed moment in the life of the church. As one commentator put it, it was not some Jewish cultural practices which were at stake, but the truth of the gospel and the future of the church. As teacher and author John Stott wrote about this moment, he said, was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ, not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world? 
and the church of Christ, not as a Jewish sect, but as the international family of God. These were revolutionary questions which some were daring to ask. You see, if the apostles had decided otherwise, or if they had misinterpreted God's holy word, Christianity as we know it today would have ended, would have turned out to be quite differently. It would have become a sect of Judaism that maybe would have required obedience to God's law as a prerequisite to getting right with God. Would have required you to embrace Jesus, yes, but also Jesus plus Jewishness for your salvation. This is what was at stake. In fact, the very heart of the gospel. And in our remaining time, I want to unpack that a little bit more and explain what lessons we can draw from this moment, from this passage, this story. And it's three things. Three things we'll look at, look at quickly. Number one, the liberation of grace. Two, the exclusion of culture, cultural norms. And thirdly, the constraints of love, the liberation of grace, the exclusion of culture, and the constraints of love. Let's look at it. Number one, the liberation of grace. This council was called together, and they're talking about it. What does God say about whether or not one is required to follow all the strictures of the law of Moses in the Old Testament? In order to be saved, in order to be forgiven of your sins, in order to be right with God, in order to be called a son and daughter of God. And so they got together to talk about it. And I need to say in passing that it's an important side lesson that we can learn from this moment. That it's a good thing for churches to be accountable to one another. To not simply operate independently in deciding what the Bible says or what the doctrines of the church ought to be, independently reading God's word as if you were the first ones ever to read God's word, coming up with independent interpretations and applications. It's good for churches to be submitted to other churches, to come together and say, humbly, we need the input of others. We need to decide important matters about how to read God's word together. And so it's good, therefore, to be in the life of what might be called denominations. There are certainly flawed versions of this. And there are many reasons why denominations form unrighteously for divisive reasons or for arrogant reasons or for reasons that are unhealthy, broken relationships. But there is a right sense in which we should come together and say, let's figure out the life of the gospel together. And not only those who are in the room here, but those that are in other rooms and other places. And not only in this present time in history, but all throughout history, humbly saying those fathers and mothers in the faith that came before us have something to say to us as well. This council that came together in Acts chapter 15 gives us a good lesson about how it is that we should think about the truth of the gospel and the fellowship and the communion of saints. As they got together, they essentially raised one of two questions. We'll deal with the second one in a moment. The first question they considered was, do we need to obey the Old Testament ceremonial laws in order to be saved? The apostle Peter was brought up sort of as the first witness, and he told them a little bit about the way in which God had already been active, pouring out his kindness upon Gentile, non-Jewish people as he preached the message of the gospel, and as he witnessed them by the power of the Holy Spirit believe in the good news of Christ. In other words, he said, God has already gone in front of us. This is not a question about whether or not we would permit non-Jewish people to enter the church. God has already done it, flung wide open the doors, by his grace and love, grabbed a hold of people, brought them in. Even as they were running away from God himself, he pursued them in his love, in his kindness, in his compassion. He's already forgiven them of his, their sins, and he's already poured his own life presence into them as they have shown signs that they too have the Holy Spirit just as we do, said the Apostle Peter. 
And then he gets to this part in his word in verses 10 and 11 that we need to pay attention to. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the neck of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. The first word that needed to be clarified in this council was that all of salvation, all of getting right with God, all of getting your life cleaned up, all of being all that you were meant to be, all of what some like to describe as living your best life now, all of that is by a gift from God. It's not something that you earn by your daily performance, by doing the right things and following the right rules. That it's not an invitation here to bribe God with your good deeds, but rather to enjoy God because of his kindness already extended to you. The Apostle Peter and those around him that day confirmed that according to God's word and the witness of his own ministry, his direct ministry by the Spirit to the Gentiles, meant that one could be loved and accepted by God simply by putting their faith in Jesus, embracing him as the one who did for you everything needed to get right with God. Jesus was the perfect performer before God so that you and I wouldn't need to be. The word grace means gift. And too many of us don't know how to simply say thank you to a gift. I'm talking not just in religious terms. I'm talking even when someone gives you a little present. We get uncomfortable and awkward. We kind of defer and push away. Someone this past week was so generous and kind to offer to pay lunch as we pay for lunch as we had met together. It was a delightful conversation. Enjoyed the time and out of their kindness, they said, "Uh, I would like to cover the tab. May I please do so? And I kind of spilled out with these words that we all say all the time, almost by habit. Oh, you don't need to. Which, of course, made no sense in that moment. The person responded, I know I don't need to. It's not why I'm doing this. No, they were, they were polite and kind. But it was just that impulse of mind, right? Do you have that where you just can't just right from the start simply say, wow, thanks. Is it any wonder that we struggle with the greatest gift of all? The gift of life that God gives So great that it almost embarrasses you because it exposes all the ways that you couldn't have constructed it yourself. And it's almost out of that shame and embarrassment because we're so uncomfortable with being weak and morally poor. Seeing the great gift of Jesus' death and resurrection for us, we almost want to say, "Well, well, Jesus, you didn't have to do that. You don't need to do that. To which God says, "I, I know, I don't need to. And even as we start to grab our wallet and fumble through our credit cards or our cash, almost to say, hey, God, here, I've got a couple here of of, of my own here. Let Let me give you a... And God says, don't you know what a gift is? Could you not simply, upon the first hearing of this wonderful story of God's grace, of his unconditional love, for you simply to respond as your first response, wow, thank you. Because don't you know, that's all he asks of you. Not a couple more bucks of your own. Not a tip for the server. Out of the good deeds that you can muster up to sort of match God, thinking he's a God of matching grants, he's only going to pay out if you give a few of your own. Which is why some of us feel that we must do good in life in order for God to love you. Is that why you're working so hard? Is that why you're so committed to activism in the way that you are? 
Is, is that why you get up so early and you stay up so late? Because you feel like you need to pay God a tip. Do you feel this? Or is this why it's just so hard for you just to, to freely say thank you and to live a life of joy? You're anxious because you feel like you haven't done enough for God and he might actually boot you out. Do you live with this fear and anxiety? This is what the apostle here describes as a yoke. The yoke, that's the language of, of a harness that's placed on a cattle that needs to work or a harness placed upon a slave that needs to work. Whatever the image might be, don't you know what the apostle is saying? There's a way in which when we forget the grace of God, we live like slaves, fearful, controlled by the things that we worship besides Jesus. Feeling even controlled by God, knowing that his desire is not to relate to you in that sort of way. But you're saying, God, but I've got a couple bucks here. Let me pay you off. God, I've got some more to tip you with. God, are you happy with me? God, do you really love me? And the whole time he's saying, I love you. I've always loved you. Nothing's ever changed. Why? Because your standing with me is grounded not in your daily good doings and your avoidance of bad doings. Your standing with me is grounded in the death and the life and the resurrection of Jesus. And guess what? That's never going to change. Because he lives forever. And he reigns and he stands on your behalf. God's love for you will never wax or wane. This is the story of grace living according to the gift of God, not the paycheck of God. Don't you know the apostles are telling us Jesus is the gift that God gives to us for our salvation. And the gospel of grace is simply this, Jesus plus nothing. There's nothing more that you need to bring except wide open arms tear-filled eyes, knees to the ground, and words that stammer with, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. It's all he asks of you. Sometimes it's the hardest thing to give. Sometimes a thank you is the heart. I mean, let's be real. Sometimes a thank you is the most humbling, hardest thing to give. It's what God asks of you. He wants to liberate you from the yoke of slavery, of feeling like all of life is on you. You ever feel that way? Maybe you mutter it to yourself. It feels like everything is depending on me. But it doesn't, of course. God's got you. But it feels that way. The grace of God liberates us from these yokes, the yoke of anxiety, the yoke of people-pleasing, Feeling like you're always having to manage your relationships. You can't really be free. Keep everybody happy. The yoke of feeling like you need to actually be on board with all the right causes and make sure you say all the right things. The freedom of finally having a secure identity of one who's loved by your maker and your savior. The freedom of knowing that you're significant. So you don't need to prove your worth. You don't need to prove your worth. In the eyes of God. How life-changing would that be if you believe that today? Your identity is secured in Christ. Your sense of self-worth, at least growing day by day, because this stuff takes time to believe the gospel afresh in a life-changing way and to know the great joy of being in, G in Jesus. In Jesus. Do you need to obey the Old Testament ceremonial laws in order to be saved? The answer of the apostles was no, because we're liberated by the grace of God. The liberation of grace. Number two, the exclusion of culture. Number two, the second question the apostles were asking was, do you need, do you need to become culturally Jewish to become a Christian? Well, you've heard by now a couple of different references to the law of Moses, these different requirements. So what were the rules that were in dispute? Well, I want to explain to you that they were essentially religious ceremonial rules that basically established and then enforced aspects 
of Jewish culture. And let me explain what I mean by that. That God early on gave a number of rules about how one was to remain ceremonially pure, clean. And so there were a number of rules about what kinds of foods you could eat, which kinds of foods you need to avoid eating. The idea there wasn't that there was anything inherently wrong or contaminated with any kind of food. God certainly made all animals and plants. Just don't eat the ones that will kill you. That's a different thing, right? But no thing is by nature unclean and will make you unclean. No, but God was simply trying to teach them a lesson. So that it's not just when you come to religious services that you're thinking morally, but every day and every moment of life, every time you get hungry and you think about what do I need to eat, that you are being reminded in your soul that there is such a thing as cleanness and uncleanness. That there's such a thing as the the pollution of your innards, Uh, not just your body, but there's a spiritual thing that you need to pay attention to. So God builds it right into the food system of Israel. I mean, what a better way to keep reminding them again and again. There's a, such a thing as cleanness and uncleanness, not in your food, but in the moral places of your hearts. Guess what? You're unclean. You are polluted because of your sin, your selfishness. You need a cleaning. But see, all these laws were really meant to keep pointing them again and again to the mercy of God. And so God gave them ceremonial washings, these rituals that they needed to perform, ways that they need to wash, sacrifices that they had to make. But see, none of that was ever in and of itself something that made them clean. It was pointing rather to the cleansing mercy of God, which one day became an embodied mercy in the very person of Jesus. Jesus, who would be the perfect goat, the lamb of God, the one who would be sacrificed to atone for all of our sins. Jesus, whose blood would be the washing, not the ceremonial stuff, but the true washing of our souls from the pollution of our sin. We sang these songs, and Kristen was right to remind us, we sing a lot about the blood of Jesus. Well, that's not being gory and sicko about it. That's talking about the death of Jesus having value, of actually being able to wash and atone for all of our sins. But you see, in the meanwhile, these laws, these commands remained on the level of food that you could and couldn't eat, ceremonies that you had to do. And as they turned out to be food kinds of rules and washing kinds of rules, they, of course, changed the way that you could relate to other people because you relate over food. And so there are ways in which there was a culture that was created around these laws. And the question then naturally becomes, well, if you follow these laws, this is essentially what makes you culturally Jewish, So in deciding whether or not we need to follow these rules, we're also deciding whether you need to become Jewish in order to become Christian. And then we're told in verse 19, as James speaks, speaking from the word of God, quoting from the prophet Amos, pointing at the witness and the evidence of God's work among the Gentiles. In verse 19, we're told, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. You see, because to insist on obedience of these ceremonial laws for all intents and purposes, you are effectively excluding Gentiles from the family of God. And this is what the apostles were articulating and clarifying. That it is not true that you must become Jewish in order to become a Christian. And in fact, that it's true that you do not need to become any particular kind of culture in order to become a follower of Christ. Let me say that one more time. That because of the grace of God, no person is required to become themselves any other kind of culture than the one that God has already created them in, in order for them to get right with God and to be included in the family of God. And yet, of course, in the history of our faith, we have not always abided by this important gospel principle, that it has too often been the case throughout Christian history 
And one that we need to, questions that we need to continually ask about ourselves, even here in our local setting, whether or not we fall to the same temptations. But that it has been articulated at times, or sometimes enforced without articulation, that you need to become perhaps more Western or white in order to become a Christian or to be a part of a particular family. Or you need to become more Yankee and less Southern in order to be accepted within a particular body. Or that you must become less black in order to be accepted and loved and approved by God and this particular family. Or less Chinese or less Puerto Rican. Or you must become more of something else. 17th century Western European, for example. To speak in a certain way, to love in a certain way, to relate in a certain way, to worship in a certain way. More punctual, less late, less emotional, more Chris Tomlin, less Fred Hammond. What are the things that we erect that prove to become barriers, even requirements. Again, I'm not talking about what you would write down on a test or quiz of formal doctrine. I'm talking about the practical ministries of relationship in church. Ways in which we communicate to people, you need to become more like this in order to be all the way in. The apostles, aware of this tendency, Not because of their own volition or desires, but based upon what they saw in the activity of God and the Holy Spirit. And based upon the word of God and the prophets. They were not making this stuff up. We're doing everything they can to preserve the right of every person to be exactly whom God created them to be. That Gentiles could be Gentiles in the life of the church. That the Syrians there in Antioch could remain being Syrians. That the Greeks could remain being culturally Greeks. That the Jews could also remain culturally Jewish. That you might be able to be in Christ and in Christ's community and still feel that you are welcome to be fully black. That you might feel that you are encouraged to be as God made you to be in his providence, fully Alabamian. That God might give you the grace to find yourself in Christian community and in Christ, but rightly and fully the Indonesian brother or sister or Guatemalan brother or sister or Minnesotan brother, because that's a culture too, y'all, right? Brother or sister that God has made you to be. What would it look like for our church to grow as well in removing such barriers and growing in the esteem of one another. As we grow as a cross-cultural community, you know, we have heard from a number of people over the years uh, give us the feedback joyfully that this is a first church here where uh, they would say, I've uh, not only felt welcome myself as a cultural minority, but also where I feel confident inviting other co-workers of color to my own church. Thank you so much. We've heard that feedback. We've also heard others say, I don't feel fully free to be myself. And that there is a thick culture here at the church that is hard to penetrate, and I'm not sure that's me. Or that I, as an Asian American or as a black American or whatever it might be, don't feel fully embraced and esteemed culturally in this church. For those of you in that latter grouping, I, I want to say we are genuinely sorry that you have felt this way. We want to do better based upon these kinds of convictions. That this is not just a sideshow or a side commitment. This is part of gospel life together. This is precisely that for which Christ has died. To liberate us in order to love and embrace one another. Not despite our differences, but in our differences because we need each other. Because God wants to bring us together. God gives us grace, even in our weakness and limitations. This is not a word of condemnation, not one that should lead us to discouragement. 
Rather, it's one that should encourage our hearts, lead us to know that God gives us grace to grow. Even these very apostles who were able to do these miracles and who walked with Jesus himself, even they didn't get it right, not overnight. Why would we expect ourselves to be any more perfect at it than they? Jesus will give us grace to grow. Be encouraged, dear saints. But here's the question. Do you want to grow? Do you want to grow in that way? Do you want to extend yourself with new combinations of relationships? Do you want to see yourself in new kinds of friendships with people different than yourself? Do you want to dare to push yourself into different kinds of of ways of relating with one another? Do you want to see cross-cultural gospel community in the way that the gospel itself promises might be possible, yes, even here. What can that look like, dear friends? Thirdly and lastly and quickly, the constraints of love. I want to point out to you that at the end of this council, they had decided that surely the good news of Jesus is one that not only liberates us by God's grace, not to have to earn God's favor by the performance of laws, but rather that we're freely loved and accepted through Christ, but also because of that, we are embraced no matter our cultural backgrounds and free to express ourselves in covenant community together. And so what the apostles then did was they decided to write a letter to all the surrounding churches to communicate this, to clarify exactly what it is, what it means to be in gospel community together. But notice in verse 20 that there's an important stipulation that's also added. Not only that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God, bring them all in, but verse 20, instead, we should write to them, telling them also to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. What is going on there? Didn't we just say that there aren't old rules that needed to be followed in order to be brought into the community of Christ? Well, verse 21 explains a little bit of what is going on here. It says, For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is what is going on here. It's fascinating and it's worth listening to. What James was saying is in every city of every church that we're starting up, that we're encouraging to be multi-ethnic and cultural, there are loads and loads of Jewish people everywhere. And because of their Jewishness, even as they come to Christ, they will have this impression that there are still cultural rules that need to be followed. And that even though we assert based on God's word that you are free not to have to become Jewish in order to come to Christ, here's what we are saying. Out of love and regard, could you still Gentile Christians accommodate a few of these Jewish practices that might be especially offensive for a Jewish Christian to see you violate in their eyes, could you in love please abide by a few of these guidelines, not laws of God, but rules and directives in your relationships that might make your fellowship and unity more possible? What these are a reference to are different rules about what foods you could eat. Food polluted by idols. Of course, in the pagan Gentile world, a lot of food was offered up to idols. Christians were free to eat them. The apostle talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Romans 14. But if a Jewish person is just so troubled by it, could you in their presence say, all right, let me eat what you're eating? Or rules here relating to meat of strangled animals, which was not allowed, or blood from animals, not eating those things directly. Sure, there might be a different kind of cuisine in Gentile culture, but hey, Gentiles, when you're around Jewish people, it's just so hard for them. Could you just not eat those things around them? Sexual immorality, it's not pointing at these 
universal moral laws of sexual immorality with respect to adultery or incest or sexual intimacy in the context of marriage, for example. But this is specifically talking more about Leviticus 18 and different ways in which there are rules, cultural rules, about what kind of sexual intimacy can be practiced, for example, during the time of a woman's period, or how many degrees of separation need to be present in order for you to be able to marry a distant relative. Some of these things that were not moral issues at the end of the day, but rather cultural ones, were here the apostles are saying, can you kindly sort of respect where Jewish people are at with this? What is going on here? And it's this. Friends, even if the gospel and the grace of God frees you, you are never freed from the obligation to love. You are freed not to have to earn your salvation before God. But that freedom should actually give you more grace in your heart to want to do everything that you can to love a brother or sister or a neighbor. To love them, especially in ways that might draw them into relationship with yourself. Draw them into fellowship in the church. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5.13, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. In other words, you are free. But Jesus tells us, be careful ever of saying, look, I'm free. I'm free to do what I want. If God hasn't told me I can't do it, I don't care. That's my right. Love always lays down liberties. Love always lays down liberties. And that makes us nervous sometimes, especially In our time, in our culture, we're so zealous to protect freedom of all kinds, whether religious, spiritual, or civil. But listen, the freedom of the gospel is intended to free you to put someone else first. Why? Because it's liberating you from the slavery to yourself, your selfishness. Don't you want to be free From that addiction, always needing to get your way. Don't you want to see what it looks like to use your freedom to promote someone else's good? Not because you have to, but because you want to. To love a small child, giving up the freedom perhaps as a parent to see movies anytime you want to. That sounds so petty. That's not a petty thing. (laughs) Or the freedom to sleep as long as you want to, perhaps. It's a sacrifice, but it's a labor of love. The binding love, if we could call it that, of loving a coworker, maybe to help them along in their development, to slow down so much, maybe you don't get to advance as quickly as you want to. Because you love, because you're using your freedom not to indulge yourself, but to promote another th- person. But in cultural terms, what does that look like here? What it looks like is this. Everyone has to give something up in order to be in fellowship together. Every person has to abstain from something in order to be a part of one family. Abstain from what your preferences might be or what you otherwise, in the privacy of your own relationships, might be free to actually pursue the food you eat, the music you listen to, the way that you relate. When you come together, we love and so we lay our lives down in order to be together. What do you need to give up? What cultural preferences or demands do you need to give up in order to be in cross-cultural community together? Are there things that you might actually need to, let's call it abstain, just to use the language of this passage, abstain from in order to spend more time or space with someone that's different from you? But I don't like that kind of food. Maybe not naturally, but what might love make you do? But I don't really like that kind of music or that style of worship. What might the love of Jesus compel you to endure or even learn to appreciate? But I don't actually just like, I don't naturally care about those kinds of political issues. I'm over here, they're over there. What might love teach you about putting on someone else's flesh to experience life through their point of view, to actually see the world through their eyes and to weep with their tears? 
What might the gospel call us to abstain from in order to love a person different from ourselves? And I need to point this out as well. That the apostles were saying this to Gentiles who at that time were the minority in the church. That they were also, they were actually in this moment talking about paying regard to the majority who were at that time the Jews in the church to care for them, to make room for them. That there is a place in the gospel and nowhere else and no one else will tell you this. But even if you are a cultural minority, it is, of course, part of your labor of love to make room for people in the majority into your life. To love them, to accommodate them. And that's even acknowledging that when you move into majority spaces, you've already made a whole bunch of lists of abstentions. You have already maybe for a moment shed certain cultural distinctives of your own even to be in the room. Yes, that's acknowledging that. But love is always two-way. Sacrifice is always two-way. Because Jesus lived and died that way. Because what is the constraint of love? It's the constraint of cross. It's how Jesus loved us. Not for his own pleasure, but for our lives. Not to have his own rights, but to give us the right to be called sons and daughters of the king. Jesus loved like this, enforcing constraints and abstentions upon himself in order to die for you and me, to give us life, to bust open doors of exclusion that all people of every culture might be one together in Jesus' name to liberate us by the power of grace. This is the gospel that's meant to transform our relationships, our lives. Do you know this Christ this grace. As one scholar put it, this moment in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council liberated the gospel from its Jewish swaddling clothes into being God's message for all humankind and gave the Jewish Gentile church a self-conscious identity as the reconciled people of God, the one body of Christ. This is who we want to be. I know you want to be as well. Do you know it's only possible by the grace of God, the liberating grace of God, the exclusion barrier breaking grace of God, the constraining grace of God that teaches us to love and to love as we have been loved. Let's love. Let's pray. Jesus, give us grace. Give us your spirit. Oh, we, we need our hearts to be changed. This is not just a matter of the will, just doing things that we don't want to do but feel we have to do. Jesus, change our hearts. Help us to see what you've saved us from and what you've saved us to. Help us to get new glimpses of the power of the gospel at work around us. Give us a new kind of unity in our church. Mix up our relationships that catches the eye of the watching world. That it would be true of all of us. There's no explaining why we are together except for Jesus. Natural enemies or natural awkward people now brothers and sisters and family because of Christ. Make these things true of us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.